Welcome to another episode of It's a Long Beach Thing, where we bring on guests and we talk about this beautiful city we call Long Beach. And now, here's your host, motivational coach, Paul Fortune. Welcome to another episode of It's a Long Beach Thing. Be sure to subscribe to the to the podcast if you haven't done so already to hear upcoming episodes and like our Facebook group. It's a Long Beach thing for upcoming content. We have a great show for you today. We have writer Chris Epting with us. Chris, how are you today? I'm doing great, Paul. How are you? I'm doing great as well. I have so many great questions to ask you. I I think it's going to be a great, great uh, conversation because I heard you speak the other day at the Signal Hill Chamber of Commerce and all the stories that you that you were telling. I could have listened to you for hours and upon hours. That's very kind of you to say. Thank you. No problem. So let's start here. What is your connection with Long Beach? Well, it's it's um it's pretty simple, really. I moved to the area to the Belmont Shore area a year ago. As we're talking today, it's exactly a year ago. Um, I was familiar with Long Beach. I've been to Long Beach plenty of times, having lived in Huntington Beach for the last twenty some odd years. But um, you know, this was it was time for a move, and uh, found a place I really liked here, and um, and I became a resident. So I'm here now uh, on the Peninsula area. of Belmont Shore, which I really like a lot. I wasn't that familiar with the peninsula before, but I've just fallen madly in love with it since being here. And uh, it's given me a chance to also explore other parts of Long Beach as well that I was not as familiar with. Absolutely. And since you're in the Belmont Shore area, what's your favorite place to eat now? You know, there's a lot. Obviously, Second Street's got a lot of things going on. Um, I like uh, Sushi on Fire. I like, there's a place called Roe, a seafood place I like. But I really, on the peninsula, there's one place called Vibes Cafe. It's the only, mm-hmm. it's one of only two businesses, businesses, I believe, on the peninsula. And I like Vibes a lot for a lot of reasons. It's convenient, but it's a very cool menu, um, great clientele, great people who work there. And it really, it's like a neighborhood place. And that's my little go-to where I live. So that's worked out just great. Absolutely. And, and you know a lot of the history of, of Long Beach. As uh, you were telling a story about Babe Ruth used to come into uh, Long Beach uh, when he was in his playing days. Can you go over that story with us? Sure. I mean, Babe Ruth in the off season back in the 1920s and 30s, like a lot of players would tour around the country, make a few extra bucks, get out of town, you know, kind of live freely um, away from the scrutiny of the media every day. And a lot of guys did that. Babe Ruth took it to kind of another level. He actually developed a whole stage show and he would travel, uh, not even play baseball all the time. I mean, he would play games, you know, from time to time, but also had a stage show where he would get up and tell stories and, and uh, you know, give little exhibitions on baseball. And he had been down in, on, it was in winter of 1927 had been in San Diego one day and brought a bunch of kids up on stage to sort of demonstrate some baseball techniques. And the next day when he got to Long Beach, he was going to do a show downtown and he got arrested for uh, from the day before he was charged with, I think it was um, hiring minors like without a work permit or something like that. I mean, some really kind of trumped up 
uh, charge that I believe fell apart after the fact, but he was arrested in Long Beach and uh, he did some duck hunting nearby a couple of times at a place called the Farmer's Gun Club over where the Los Alamitos racetrack is today. But yeah, he was, um, you know, Long Beach, of course, has attracted all kinds of iconic people all over the years, Babe Ruth being one of them. I'm a big Rolling Stones fan. I love reading about their first forays into uh, into Long Beach back in the early and mid 60s. I mean, Frank Sinatra. I mean, I, really, there's somebody that hasn't played Long Beach outside, outside of like the Beatles or anything like that. But when you look at the old auditorium that was there, that's no longer there today, but that was there for concerts in the 70s and, of course, the arena. Uh, numerous clubs throughout Long Beach. Long Beach is really a great music mecca as well. It, it sure is, especially the Long Beach Convention and the Grand Prix. They always have some good acts that way. Yeah, in um, fact, I did. A, I wrote a book with John Oates the, of Hall & Oates, and John's a race car enthusiast. And he, in the book, we talk about how he and George Harrison um, would hang out at the Grand Prix in the 70s. I, you know, they would get, they knew a lot of the drivers. They could kind of, sort of co-mingle down there and not get hassled too much because the drivers were the real stars and they loved doing that. So I know the race attracts a lot of different kinds of people, but uh, there was a Beatle wandering those premises as well for a while. The, the Beatles hung out at the Grand Prix? Well, no, when, like I said, George Harrison meeting oh. John Oates down there. So you had at least one Beatle. Yeah, there you was, go. Uh, whenever I drive down there, I always think about, you know, what the scene is like down there for the Grand Prix. But no, obviously one of the, the real uh, true great events in this country when it comes to auto racing. You were you've been able to talk to many people as a writer, but I'd like to go from the start of that. How'd you get into it? Because you have a good story about a, a famous writer that took you under his wing and, and really showed you the ropes. Yeah, I, I grew up in New York, about an hour north of New York City in a place called Westchester County, very rural, very beautiful. And uh, I had a I was in fourth grade and I had a teacher who had reached out to my, I got home one day and my mom said, Miss Rinaldi called the house. And I was really taken aback because I only thought teachers would call the house if something was really wrong. And I hadn't done it. I was a pretty good kid. I wasn't like a troublemaker. So I, I was very curious what had happened. And what had happened was we had had an assignment in class to write uh, a short story, like a short fiction story. And I really enjoyed it. I, for the first time I could remember in school, I liked doing something. An assignment felt like it was fun, you know, and not drudgery, like so much of the other work we were being given, homework and such. And so she was calling our house to tell my mom that she thought I had done a really good job on it and that they might want to encourage me writing because I really seemed to take to it. And that meant so much to me that literally that night I said to my parents, well, if Miss Rinaldi felt that, then I want to be a writer. Like, that's what I want to do. It was so... Uh, it impacted me to such a degree that this teacher who I really liked, and she was a really good teacher, um, had that thought that I, that was it, you know? And I, so I went from wanting to be a baseball player to wanting to be a writer, two very hard things to, to make happen, you know, which I wasn't aware of at that age. I thought you could just do whatever you wanted to do. So anyway, um, and we had like a little uh, library at home and my dad had rows of books by his favorite writers couple of whom were Ernest Hemingway and John Steinbeck and a guy named John Cheever, American novelist and short story writer. And unbeknownst to me, John Cheever lived not too far from where we lived, maybe mile, mile and a half away or so. You couldn't see the houses. They were sort of set back in the woods, but there was a mailbox that said Cheever on it. My dad said, well, he lives there. You need to write him a note and ask him for advice. You know, he'll, he'll, 
hopefully be able to give you some tips on how to become a writer. And so, you know, your parents suggest that. What are you going to do? Like not do it? <laughs> so I wrote a little note to him expressing my interest in being a writer. It was, I stopped thinking about it at that point. And then a few days later, my mother got really excited and came, she got in the mail and uh, there was a letter from John Cheever. I mean, addressed to me, typed, you know, not handwritten. I remember the envelope was typed, which I thought was like very formal, you know? And uh, I, I opened the letter and it said word for word. It said, dear Chris Epting, it's nice to know there's another writer living in the neighborhood. One day I will give you a call. We'll take a walk and talk about writing. John Cheever. I've never forgotten a syllable of that. And, you know, my parents were kind of freaked out by it. And I just figured, you know, if you write somebody, they write you back. That that's just, you know, your, your young mind assumes a lot of things. And that was something I assumed. So, uh, and again, I kind of put it out of my mind and, and just thought, well, maybe he will, you know. A couple of days later, the phone rings. It's John Cheever. And uh, he, I guess he, I'm thinking, you know, I think back on, he must have called directory to get our number because I didn't give him our phone number. And, uh, but back then, life was so much simpler. <laughs> you could do that or look up it in the phone book. Yellow pages, yeah. Right, or the white page. So um, anyway, he called and my mother was uh, even more excited than when the envelope arrived and she numbingly handed me the phone. And I had a brief conversation with him. He was very, you know, very polite. He had this old, he sounded old to me. He had like an old um, New England tinged accent he was from quincy massachusetts and he had that sort of drawn out very new england uh pattern of speech so anyway he says listen um have your mom bring you over i think it was the next day if you can and um remember at little league practice we worked around that and i think before practice uh i went over there and my mom just dropped me off we drove back he said bring your bring a short story that you wrote and um she drove back and you know, times were so different that I got out of the car. I said, I'll call you later. She pulled away. I went up, knocked on the door and his wife let me in and thus began, you know, I went and met him. He was in his office sitting at this old antique desk and, you know, he was, we had this conversation, you know, and uh, I was there probably two hours or something, fairly long time. And he said, look, you need to go home. If you, if you really want to do this, he goes, you need to start keeping a journal like today. He goes, writers write. And I'm going to forget that. He said that a lot of people will tell you they want to write, but the last thing they'll do is pick up a pencil and write. He goes, so you have to, if you want to be a writer, you have to start acting like a writer. And I did. I went home that night and began keeping a journal. And he goes, you can write whatever you want. It. Just, just about your life, about your frustrations, whatever it is, just, just get, make your hand write. It's, it's like an exercise. And you need to exercise your writing muscle. And I said, okay. And I started doing that. And then I, uh, you know, th thus developed this friendship with him, you know, and I would go over there every week or two when he was in town. And this went on for years. I mean, he, th this was in about uh, 1973, 74, and he passed away in 81. So it was a fair amount of time. I was in college when he died. And we'd become really good friends at that point. And that was a very, uh, for me, that whole experience was really instrumental and, and really important. Uh, probably just in showing me what a writer looks like, what they act like, how they behave, just sort of like, you know, you watch that as much as anything. I would watch his behavior and see what he was working on and watch. I would go to 
he would occasionally take me if he had like a local reading or something at the library. I'd go with him and I'd watch how he was with people and how he would comport himself. And that was all really, I realized it after what an education it was. It's like, well, that's how you're a writer. You know, you, that's how you talk to people. That's how you read your own work. That's how you um, always have stacks of notebooks and sharpened pencils. And, you know, so looking at all those, those things was a real influence for me because he was, uh, you know, very well thought thought of writer by by a lot of people and uh, and so yeah we would but it wasn't just about writing I mean we became like was oddly like friends I mean you know I remember I had gotten a ten a new ten speed bike when I was maybe like I don't know maybe a couple year or two after I got to know him really nice almost like a like a French racing bike you know and I rode it to his house one day and he had never he didn't know about a bike with gears you know. And he went and got the same bike. Like he went and bought literally, he said, find it from your parents where, you, where they got that. And, uh, and he got one. So we would go ride these, his twin, there was a San Antian was, was the brand of the bike, orange, orange San Antian bikes. And we would ride down uh, Spring Valley Road to T-Town Road, all these very winding, beautiful country roads. And, and just talk about baseball, about writing, about um, what was happening in the world. And it was really, you know, again, I look back on it and I, it's almost surreal when I read him today and think that uh, I was in that world for, for those years with him. It was really, uh, I think I mentioned at our lunch when you and I met that what really hit me a few years later was, I think it was in 1978 or so. So I'm in high school now. And I was in the supermarket, supermarket with my mother and we're checking out and they're staring back at me from the cover of Newsweek magazine was John Cheever. He was on the cover that week and it, I was like, oh my God, this, he's really, I never really, you know, teenager, I was, I, you know, at that point I'm into the Sex Pistols and the Rolling Stones, you know, <laughs> Ramones and, and music and, you know, reading all kinds of weird literature. So it's like, it hit me who this guy was, you know, finally. And I bought the magazine. I was going to see him that day, coincidentally. And I brought it to him. And I said, I never forget. I put it on his desk and I said, you're John Cheever. Like, <laughs> why do you let me in here to your, your world? You know, and he told me this really interesting story about how when I first contacted him, he had been um, a raging alcoholic and a horrible father, husband, you name it. And that his wife had just let him back in the house when I wrote him. And he got my letter and thought to himself, well, you know, I'm rebuilding here, you know, I'm, I'm sort of starting over in, in a sense, and I need to do things like this. If a kid reaches out, um, he said, you know, it was incumbent upon me to help because he goes, really, he goes, you've been out with me in public enough. Now you see what people, how they make demands of me. And they really did. I mean, there were always people, you know, pushing manuscripts in his face and editors, and he was always getting hit up at events when I would go with him. And he goes, you were just asking for a little, a little time, you know, a little consideration uh, as a writer, he said, and that was helpful for me to be able to reach out. And he goes and here, we, we became friends too. So that was the benefit. So it was really, um, you know, I learned a lot from him. And uh, even one time when I went to college at Emerson College in Boston, Emerson was weird because you, to get into the writing program I wanted to get in, they would factor in all your grades. And I was a horrible math student. And that math grade was keeping me out of the writing program, which I thought was absurd that they would. And I, and from one time in my life, I called John Cheever back in New York, Emerson's in Boston. And I said, um, Mr. Cheever, I hate to bug you with this, but I kind of laid out 
what was going on. And he goes, well, that's ridiculous that they were. I said, I know, I know. I said, but here's the deal. I said, they're, they're massive fans of yours. The, the chair of the department and a couple of the professors who are involved in this uh, writing program. I said, would you call them and just express your, your discomfort with their program and how they don't let people in, you know, uh, based on other math grades? He says, no problem. So he, I guess he called because the next day I get like welcomed into the i mean it was so it was so shallow there I mean, they were so shamelessly hypocritical but it was okay i got into the program and they just rolled out the red carpet he actually went up there and spoke at one point as well um to the group which is really incredible and blew them away but uh but in that respect that was one time it came in handy our, our little friendship there you know with with hearing your story there's one thing that stands out to me you must have two amazing parents because you said two things when you started your, your story was, I want to be a baseball player first, and then I want to be a writer. You said earlier, those are two very, 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 very hard things to get into. But it sounds like your parents didn't discourage you either way. Not even a little. Writing to uh, John Cheever, uh, they encouraged you to write and you did not have this limited belief in yourself that you couldn't do anything. And I think it has a lot to do with your great parents. I, I think that's a great point. And I appreciate you calling that out. And it's true. I mean, my parents were very much, um, my dad had come from nothing, Pennsylvania kind of farm kid who, who turned into a very successful businessman on Madison Avenue as an advertising executive. My mother was a nurse and, um, and an incredible mom and uh, kept the household going while my dad was working. And, and yeah, they were very much about uh, doing, chasing what you felt you were here to do and, and not to get overwhelmed with uh, the odds or anything like that. Their attitude was, look, I remember my, you know, my dad and I say it to my kids all the time, somebody's gonna do it, right? It isn't like it's not going to happen. Someone's going to be a published author. Someone's going to play second base for the Mets. Someone's going to do it. So as long as there, someone's going to do it, you might as well carve your path toward it because someone's going to get in there, you know. And it's it's true. I mean, it's a simple thing, but it's like we don't. Sometimes things seem so far out of reach, but somebody is going to make it there. And uh, yeah, they were always very much. Um, they're both gone now, but they were always very encouraging, especially with the writing. That was something um, I think they liked that idea. My parents were avid readers and very smart, very educated um, like that. And, uh, you know, I think they, you know, my dad died a long time ago. My mom got to see a lot of my books get published, which was wonderful because she, you know, she remembered and I remembered how supportive she was in particular. So, uh, but yeah, you're right. That was a big part of it. I knew I had other friends that had sort of pie in the sky dreams that would get shot down, you know? And look, I understand as a parent, the practicality of wanting to steer your kids towards something achievable. Yet, you know what? My daughter said she wanted to be an actress. I was like, you have to do it. You have to do it. If that's what you feel you're here to do, there's, there's no, let's do everything we can to help you get there, you know? And however, whatever happens, happens. But you should never want to look back and say, I didn't take a shot. It may evolve into something else. But, but if you take an honest shot at it and throw everything you have at it, something good will come of it. You'll learn something from that. Even if you don't get what you want exactly, there's going to be some other piece of learning, uh, some other new path is going to reveal itself, and you will wind up where you belong. But you got to take the shot. 
I 100% agree with that. I can live with not accomplishing something if I gave it my all and I went for it. I gave it all, but I can't live with thinking I, I could have done that. I could have done that. I could have done that. I can't live with that. I want to live with, you know what? I gave it a go and I really went hard and didn't work out, but I learned a lot from it. And, and that's, that's where I want to live. It's true. I remember as a kid seeing a quote, it said, it's what you don't do that you regret. And I never forgot that. I, I don't think I was 10 or 11 years old. And I think it was either the daily news, one of the New York papers always had like a, an inspirational quote by the crossword puzzle, which I would always do. And that one, that's the one I remember. It's what you don't do that you regret. And whenever I would be faced later in life with, should I do this or not? I would think about that and just remind myself, yeah, it's, it's um, do it, you know, and see what happens. Failure is fine. You know, failure, I'm very much a believer in the power of failure, you know, comes from it. Yeah. So now let's say, let's, let's go forward a little bit. You, you graduate from college and now you want to be a writer and hmm. where do we go from there? Well, it's hard because, um, you know, as I, and I think my parents were relieved because midway through college, I said to them, I said, look, this is writing is a, is a fairly abstract thing to, to think you're going to come out and write the great American novel. At that age, I knew that was a tough thing to bank on. I was I'm just looking to try it. But so I started taking other communications courses and journalism, other writing things that weren't fiction or anything like that. And uh, but involved creativity. And for me, the other big thing was my dad in advertising. I would always go visit him at the office. And I, I was never much for all the suits, you know, account executives and all. But I would hear laughing and I'd wander to the back of the agency. This is in New York City. And I'd find the creative department, guys who wore jeans to work, which to me was like, uh, it sounds weird, but that really affected me. I thought you can go to this beautiful office midtown manhattan wearing jeans why is that my dad would say well those guys make the commercials and they need my dad would scoff at it a little bit because my dad was very creative as a, as a painter and an artist but he was on the account side he did what he had to do you know to uh bring home the bacon as it were but he but the creative guys he said they need to be comfortable and relaxed and kind of live in their own world and i thought well that's me and if i can't and when I came out of college, if I could uh, do that, if I could go be a cop, what's called a copywriter, where you write commercials and ads, that'll be my start. That way I can write for a living. I can support myself and I can develop a creative muscle that has where there are some stakes involved. I mean, where you're writing um, and you got to make something happen. You've got to sell something or you're not going to succeed as a copywriter. So I put all the kind of book stuff on hold a little bit and I got a portfolio together and I got a job um, without the help of my dad. My father was funny because I thought I would have friends of mine. Say, oh, you get the perfect in. My father was not of that mind. He said, look, he goes, I'll introduce you to people who will give you background on the industry and help educate you, but I'm not going to arrange a job interview for you. That's all on you. So I went and talked to plenty of people who would give me this sort of the 30,000 foot view of advertising, which was fine. You know, it was interesting, but it wasn't you know, I, I couldn't ask them for jobs, you know, I went off though. And finally on my own found a very junior level copywriting job um, inside of about six months after getting out of college. And that was, that started it for me. And I, I fell in love with advertising, with copywriting. 
my goal at that point was to become a creative director because I, I always looked at the creative director as this, this incredible job where you oversee the entire creative process, everybody's. And so I, I ultimately did that, um, but, but also learned in doing that, the problem with being a creative director is you don't write as much. You're so caught up in everybody else's work that the wonderful days of sitting there with your um, creative partner concepting up you don't do that as much anymore because you're caught up in the business presentations politics all kinds of things as a cd um that i really missed writing copies i would actually as a creator i would take freelance gigs quietly as a copywriter just to feel it just to write and create and do my own thing you know and i did that for 20 some odd years but always in the back of my head um, I love history. And I, and I early on started thinking, you know, if I'm going to be a writer, somebody, I want to write about things I'm passionate about. I'm not a fiction writer. I want to write about history and travel and baseball and music and all the things I really love. And so I would start on my own kind of pitching freelance articles and, and developing that part of my writing uh, muscle. And then um, after about 20 years of, of a really fun advertising career, I mean, again, I don't have one, I never felt like I went to work one day, honestly. Yeah. It was all uh, just fantastic and, um, and exciting and successful and all that stuff. But I thought, you know, I'm not, I was about 40, almost 40, maybe like 30 or 39. And I thought, you know, I, I don't want to do this forever either. I don't want to give up that dream I had as a kid of walking into a bookstore and seeing your name on a book or two or three or whatever. And so I uh, took a leap and, uh, you know, had a client that said, look, go out on your own for a year. We'll support you. You can do our work. And that, that, in that year, go chase your dream, you know, go, uh, go pitch your books. And I did. It was a huge thing. And I, I sold two book ideas. Uh, one was called Roadside Baseball, which was a baseball travel book all over the country. One was called James Dean Died Here, which was a, an offbeat travel book about visiting places where stuff happened, but you don't know it happened because there's no sign or anything like where James Dean died. I mean, like hundreds of those places. And those were like my two dream books. And he literally, when I went to the Baseball Hall of Fame as a kid, when I was 11, I went looking for a book like Roadside Baseball and it didn't exist in the bookstore. And at that moment, I said to my dad, I'm going to write that book someday. He said, great. And I finally did. And uh, those two books came out the same exact day, which was so weird because those are like my two, like if I had never read another book, I, I would have been fine after those books. So that kind of led, you know, opened up this whole other realm. Of, of writing and you, know, you write a couple of books and then all of a sudden you, people come to you to write articles and to edit things and to write other books and to speak and it sort of develops its own ecosystem you know if you keep if, if you have some success with it so uh to date i've written lots of books that i always wanted to write i kind of have you know part of me has branched off into this role as a memoirist where i write memoirs with other people which has also been a very exciting adjunct to writing about uh, the narrative nonfiction of history and travel, you know, so I kind of live in both of those worlds. I'm always either working on a history book at one point, and then also writing a book with somebody about their life. I want to go back a second to when you made that leap of faith and you changed directions on when you wanted to write. I know you had a client that was going to support you a little bit. There still would have to be a little bit of risk there. I mean, I, I imagine you already have started a family with your a wife and kids. No, thank you. For, no, it was a huge risk. And uh, I'm remiss in not mentioning, I mean, were it not for my wife at the time, 
absorbing that and and sort of blessing the idea wouldn't happen. I am not a risk taker by nature on any level. I was really scared. And she was very encouraging and, and said, listen, you have to do this. We'll be okay. You know, whatever happens, happens. It was a huge roll of the dice and a much different, when you're used to like a regular patient, all the stuff that goes along with being a CD at a good size ad agency. And you're, you're walking away from that mothership. Yeah. I lost lots of sleep about it. And, and my wife at the time was incredible and, and kept the fires burning and was supportive and definitely made a huge difference as did the kids. Everybody knew this was my, I don't know that it was, it wasn't a midlife thing. At least I don't think it was. It, it was, I think, I think of a midlife crisis as being somehow ephemeral or shorter lived or even a little shallow, you know, this was, I was serious about it. I wanted to do this for a living and pursue that, you know, forever with the understanding that if it didn't work, I'd go back to, I just, I would go back to that again. I would have taken the shot. And even if it didn't work out, I could have at least said I tried, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, everybody's very supportive. My mother, I mean, everybody who was close to me in my circle um, was supportive of it to a person. And, and that made a huge difference. So you had the client who practically underwrote it, um, still had demands and needed good work, but was there. I knew that money would be there. And, uh, and I had a support system around me of, of my, you know, my immediate family and, and some close friends and things as well. Mm, yeah, I mean, that, that's tremendous in that in its sense, right, that you had a network that, that held you up. So with that being said, when you made that transition, obviously, you've lost a lot of sleep nights, because you're like thinking to yourself sometimes, yeah, did I make the right decision? How long into that process did you feel comfortable and go, okay, I got this, let, let me, you know, let me be able to lay my head at night and go to sleep? I think that after about maybe two years into this new sort of bold new path, I got a call from, a, it was a publicist in Los Angeles who said, you know, one of our agents picked up your book, James Dean died here in the bookstore. And we represent uh, Hilton hotels. And we have this program called Save a Landmark where we're gonna go refurbish and restore historic landmarks in all 50 states. We've been looking for a spokesman to go out and to go to all the markets and talk about these projects and go visit schools and really kind of become the spokesman for this historic project. And would you like to meet? And I said, absolutely. So we met, it totally went great. I signed on as that spokesman. I did that for like seven or eight years. And that was really, when you realize it's not just about writing books, that there are other things you can do where you become almost an expert in certain ways. And, you know, we went and did all these historic projects. I would bring the family along as much as possible. Kids got to get dirty and get involved in these projects, which is really incredible. And I was there as a writer who wrote about history. So I had that, but I was able to sort of bring in more. And so I started doing a lot more public speaking after that. And I just realized that there's another world out there that's tangentially connected to being a writer and that you can build upon that. It's not just about books because very, it's hard to make a living just selling books, you know, but there are things connected to it, going on TV, writing articles, because you're an author. And that's where I realized that that's what I need to do is sort of mine those opportunities and uh, which leads to writing more books and stuff. So it's definitely a work in progress. I mean, to this day, I don't know how most weeks are going to shake out. 
or what call is going to come in or, or what's going to happen. But, uh, but I like that, you know, it's no two days are alike. And I've had the benefit of working with some amazing people uh, beyond the history stuff. As I mentioned, writing memoirs with people, I've done about a dozen of those books. And that's been a very rewarding as a writer to help people. And, and as a result of that, I developed a memoir writing, uh, like a workshop that I give now. And uh, I always wanted to teach. So this is letting me kind of scratch that itch where I teach every week. And, um, you know, I've had the benefit of teaching thousands of people that want to write their story, you know, and, uh, and incorporating what I learned from working with people like John Oates and um, uh, the Doobie Brothers and just these people. How'd that come with. about? I mean, I know you have the love for music and you're, you're going down this history route. How did it come about where you're starting to write memoirs for the Doobie Brothers and John Oates? Well, I, you know, it's funny as a freelance writer, you know, I became the, the LA Times hired me to write a local Orange County column, which I did for almost 10 years. So I was becoming a journalist. I was, that was another part of my writing arm was as, as a journalist. But even as a journalist, I sort of stayed within my lanes of what I wrote books about history, pop culture. That's what I was writing about and music. And so uh, at times, part of me was a travel writer, part of me was a music journalist, you know, and, but I, all, I attacked all of those assignments from the same basic idea of having a very strong curiosity, being very thorough and, and presenting parts of a story that people hadn't heard before. That was always my goal. So I was writing for like AOL and a number of pretty big outlets and, you know, uh, the NAM show, which is the big music convention, was in Anaheim one year. And I went to kind of cover it. And I remember thinking, why well, should do, I, I remember I had a chance to interview Jackson Brown. And so I talked to him and I wrote a really, I, I thought it was a nice piece about it. And it did very well. And I thought, well, this is, this is going to open me up. I want to do more of that as a music journalist. So I talked to everybody. I mean, as, as the years went on, um, I had really great experiences with all kinds of musicians and it was really fun. And, and through that, I mean, John Oates was, I was always a big Hall and Oates fan. Um, I wrote about them, interviewed them a bunch of times and John and I developed a bit of a friendship just as I had had with a guy named Phil Collin from Def Leppard a couple of years earlier. Uh, Phil was the first memoir I ever wrote. And just through our friendship, I said, when we were driving to a show, Def was down in San Diego. And he and I are driving down in his car and I said, why don't you, have you ever thought about telling your story? And he goes, nah, he goes, I don't, I don't think it would be that interesting. And I said to him, you're, you're so detached from your reality. Like I see your life. It's very interesting, but you're in this bubble. I said, writing a book would allow you to maybe figure out parts of your own life. You're not even that familiar with. And that intrigued him. So I wrote that book with him and that did well. And then same thing with John Oates. I kind of had one under my belt. So I was feeling a little bit of confidence and John and I one day were talking and I brought it up to him and he again he wasn't thinking he's eh. and I had an idea of how we might structure it what the process might be and he loved that idea that I pitched to him and so that happened and then one thing leads to another I mean John and I were doing a book tour and we were up in San Francisco and the wife of one of the Doobie brothers was there she and her daughter just went to watch us talk and she and I were talking afterwards and she says you got to meet my husband Tom Johnson so I met him and I got to know Pat. And so through that, you know, like anything, if you build up trust, I, look, I wrote a lot about these guys as a journalist. And I think bands like this, like they, they appreciated what I wrote about them. They felt like I kind of got them. And um, that builds up trust if they feel like they're dealing with somebody who understands uh, what their musical motives are and what their history is. You know, it all comes down to history. When I 
don't write books like that. I, I look at it as a historic project because to me, people like the Doobie Brothers and, and Hall and Oates. They're historic figures. By pop culture standards, they are famous historic figures. So that's how I look at those books. Not so much music memoirs as history narratives. And, and they always kind of like that too because they don't think of themselves in that light. But when somebody else does, it, it kind of allows them to be open to it and they go along with it. You have a great story about the Doobie Brothers. Can you share it with us? Oh, well, at the beginning, you know, the Doobie Brothers were basically founded by the two guys are Pat Simmons um, and Tom Johnston, two very different guys. And Pat's sort of like the hippie Bay Area, amazing kind of country picker kind of guy. Tom is like more rock and roll, straight ahead, no nonsense. And it's really that that combination of two forces is to me what produces the magic in that band but those guys like a lot of band leaders there's always tension over the years you know and whether you're talking jagger richards plant page you know the two main forces are always going to have conflict that's what makes i think a lot of good music comes from and this this was existed there and so um i knew that existed um and that i knew also that was probably going to prevent the book from getting written because it was there and it was it was you know a tangible thing and so they were playing down in san diego and um i you know time the clock was ticking these books can take a year or two to write but theirs took almost four years it was actually really long because of the pa pandemic and all that but um i wanted to know what was going on so i could start planning my life too and so i got them together in, in a hotel room backstage at the uh, at Humphreys, uh, great outdoor venue in San Diego, and just kind of put it to them and said, look, I know this ain't gonna be easy. You know, I know it's gonna um, be tense for you guys at times, but I think it's really important. I think you guys have created something here. You have a story that deserves to be told, you know, and, and you have things that you need to resolve amongst yourselves. And uh, I'm just making this speech. Like this very, <laughs> I really want to do it. I mean, I also, I love the Doobie Brothers. Like their music for me has always been something um, really special. And I've also got this thing where I never felt like they've gotten their just due. They haven't been a critical darling, like, like the great, well, not even the Grateful Dead, but like the Allman Brothers, um, the Eagles, you think of great American bands, you have Aerosmith, you have Kiss, you have the Allman Brothers, all bands that I adore, by the way. Um, you have the Grateful Dead, you have the band, but the Doobies never seem to get put in that group. And that always bothered me because not only do I think the songwriting merits it, but they're still around. I mean, and they're still making new music and they're still playing their asses off. So this meant a lot to me on a lot of different levels. I felt like this was my opportunity to do something for them, deliver their story to people in a way that would be dramatic and, and really befitting what they've earned. And so I, I like exhaust myself with my, my, my plea, you know, just short of groveling, we have to do this. And we essentially just kind of put our hands out, you know, kind of like all in team, you know, and decided we can do this. We can get this done together from that moment on. And to the guy's credit, for the years after, they were they were in for a penny, in for a pound. I mean, they they took such ownership of the story. You know, you're intertwining two different voices in one book, which I didn't consider. It's a lot, it's twice the work. But they made it a lot easier by being open, by being um, 
you know, great literary partners. And I'm super proud of that book. It just came out. It's called Long Train Running. And uh, I, I see it on my shelf and I pinch myself because if anybody had told the eighth grader who <laughs> would sit and burn through his copy of The Captain and Me um, that I would have that opportunity, I just simply would not have believed him. Yeah, and then you, I wanted you to hear the story about when they, they broke off and tore and they had to find a way to continue the tour going on. Yeah, it's, it's one of the great sort of untold stories. 1975, they're at their peak. Um, Tom is having some physical issues. Uh, they're all hitting it very hard. They're on the road all the time. Tom exacerbates some, some earlier issues he had in life um, with ulcers and all this kind of stuff that's made worse by things these guys were doing on the road of course, and, uh, and Tom's got a bail at the beginning of this huge tour, 1975, he taps out. I mean, he's, in, uh, he's on the table bleeding out and he can't play anymore. And so for all intents and purposes, he removes himself. The band doesn't know what to do. They're, they're show three into a massive summer tour. And uh, they have a new guitar player at that point named Jeff Baxter, who would come from Steely Dan. Steely Dan had stopped touring. And so they loved Jeff and he was their third guitar player. And Pat says, I think we might have to wrap this whole thing up. And Jeff says, well, wait a minute. He goes, because we had this guy in Steely Dan, this kid, he was a background singer and plays a little keyboard. But maybe if we throw him into this, maybe we can at least get over the hump. We can all flesh things out and we can swap parts and, and we'll get through the, let us get through the tour. You know, we can maybe do that. So the kid is Michael McDonald. <laughs> who at that point, after Steely Dan stops touring, uh, Michael McDonald's playing in a bar band out in the valley, doing a lot of Doobie Brothers covers. He gets the call. He flies down to New Orleans to rehearse for a couple of days. Their thought is, hey, you know what? He's better than nothing. We can at least, he's good, but he'll, he's enough to get us through the shows. And we all know what happened. <laughs> he gets more than gets them through the shows. They realize he is a, a diamond in the rough. He has an idea for a song that he shyly asks if he can present to them. It's called Taken Into the Streets. <laughs> um, they love it. They record it. It becomes the name of their next album. And the rest is history, you know. And, and then Tom eventually has a solo career, but then comes back, you know, at the end in the early 80s. And they reform. And uh, they're on the road now with Michael McDonald. It's, again, it's one of the great band stories in history the, the the energy the tenacity the perseverance these guys are that the doobie brothers and that's again why and michael i worked he was he's a big part of the book and i you know got to know him throughout the writing of it and uh you know i i watched them play today and it's like i'm so happy and so proud of that book that that the story's done no matter what happens now the story is out there it's available and i know books are forever you know, so, uh, yeah, I'm very happy with that. I, I wonder how many times do you look at these situations as that kid going, wow, I can't believe I'm talking to the Dewey brothers that I that I looked up idolizing for John Oates or I want to get into this because I love baseball just as much as you do. Talking with somebody like Tommy Lasorda that you probably grew up watching and admiring from afar i know that you're a, a new york fan but you gotta you gotta love tommy lasorda i always did i remember i remember seeing him i think it was the second year managing and i was at a met game and uh at that time he was already kind of famous he went to argue 
uh, play at the plate. And uh, I remember thinking, wow, he's really, you know, I liked him. I liked, you know, I come from an Italian family. And so Lasorda had, he reminded me of like uncles I had that when I remember <laughs> seeing him, I thought, wow, I, I kind of, I relate to him. You know, he's like very familiar to me. There was a comfort in that. And so, yeah, to your point a few years ago, uh, again, with John Oates, uh, doing a little book thing, uh, Laura Lasorda, Tommy's daughter, she's good friends with John. And coincidentally, I met her at this book event. Um, she asked me a few weeks later if I'd be interested in maybe working with her dad, who at that point was like in his late 80s about, she wasn't sure what it was. She goes, he's getting older. He's got stories to tell. And I want a writer with him every week to sit and just listen. Yeah. And uh, she goes, you got to go over there once. He's got to make sure he likes you because if he doesn't like you, it ain't going to happen. So um, you have to, there's got to be a chemistry check. And so they lived in this little house in Fullerton where they'd been since for uh, six, 60 years, just about. And I went over there one day and uh, it was Tommy and his wife, Joe and Laura. And uh, they had a caretaker there and a guy named uh, Felipe, who's a wonderful, who's like Tommy's right hand great young guy. Anyway, I went there and uh, I was nervous that it wasn't, we weren't going to connect because I was so close. I didn't want to think this wasn't going to happen. You know, I mean, Tommy Lasorda. So I go there and I was familiar with a game that he pitched and I think it was in 1947 as an up and coming pitcher, 15 innings. Uh, he uh, got the game winning hit. He struck out 25 people in this game. 25 people. Yeah, it was it was the record when he did it. It was broken a year later by uh, Ron Netchai struck out 27 in the game. But anyway, Lasorda had the record for a year. And I was reading all about the game and I went and met him and kind of little small talk. And I said, I said, Tommy, we can talk about so much. I said, but that that game, you know, like I just brought up that game. And he just uh, I don't think I said another syllable for the next hour as he recounted pitch by pitch. <laughs> and it was so much fun and he was like hell you know come back next. we'll talk more about it next week and we did and so for a couple of years you know we uh, until he died i mean we had this um incredible experience incredible for me uh and, and his daughter laura and, and her mom i mean i i the lasortas to me are like family now they are just some of those beautiful people and uh you know, like you say, as a baseball fan, it, it, you know, it was so much beyond baseball at a certain point. But uh, but then you'd remember who you were sitting there talking to, eating lunch with every week or every two weeks, whatever it was. And you just remind yourself. I remembered on his, I think it was his last birthday, a little party at his house. And he had a little den um, in their house. And the den had been built. Tommy wasn't very handy, as he would tell it. And I think in the 80s, players, uh, went, they started going over after night games and they built it for him, the, the den, the addition, handmade by Dodgers. And um, I was in there watching um, Fox Sports, whatever was on the Dodgers station. And there was a documentary about Tommy, coincidentally. So I'm watching the documentary and he's about not even 10 feet away eating cake just by himself at the table. And I was looking, it was uh, the Kirk Gibson home run they were reviewing that and i'm watching that and i'm watching tommy run out just waving his arms you know and i'm looking at eating his cake and i'm watching him on tv and just going back and forth and i thought wow this is really it's sort of like seeing john cheever on the magazine cover it's like okay all right who am i kidding 
like what the hell why am i in this house you know this timeless sorting you know and so yeah to answer your question the long way around i i always get those feelings but i don't display them because you you can't do that you know you have to you have to at least act the part that you're professionally there for the right reasons which you are but inside the, the kid in you is just going, geez, this is crazy. This is really crazy. You know, I never get over that. I mean, I grew up, I was a huge Kiss fan. Um, I mean, I literally, before we started talking, I had a Kiss t-shirt on. I, I will always love Kiss. Kiss to me was like, they, I was a very shy kid at one point in my life. And Kiss was sort of like the, gave me this kind of feeling like you could be whatever you wanted to be. If they could do that. And they, I think Kiss always spoke to that kind of kid, the misfit, sort of the outlier, you know? And uh, so I'll always have a soft spot for Kiss. And I wrote a ton about Kiss as a journalist and found myself one day in a room beneath the Viper room up in LA uh, downstairs with the four members of Kiss. And I, I knew them a little bit at that point. I had interviewed them a bunch of times and photographed and my son was with me. And Charlie at that time was probably 18 or 19 and, and a huge Kiss fan on his own. And I've got all four guys there and I'm talking to them, writing a story about what they had just- Did they finished. have their makeup on? No. Okay. I'm, this day, no. I, I've been with them like that as well though, but this was no makeup. And, um, and I was thinking in my head, it's like, God, here I am. It's me and my son and the four members of, and that's it in this room. And that was kind of, I mean, because my son, I'm thinking, God, like, he loves Kiss. It was just the whole thing was very emotional, circles of life and all that kind of stuff. And I get talking and Gene Simmons stops me. And he says, um, very seriously, he's pretty serious when he talks. And he says, Chris, um, I'm going to interrupt you here. He goes, what if, we, what if we swap things up a little bit here? And I said, what do you mean? Charlie had a Kiss shirt on, of course. And he says, what if we were, no offense to you, but what if we let your son here conduct the first part of the interview strictly from the perspective as a KISS fan and see how he does with this? And I said to Charlie, I said, are, are you up for that? And Charlie, my son is always up for any, and Charlie truly oh, he seizes every moment. And so I sat back <laughs> and Charlie was a smart kid. I mean, he's not, you know, he presents very well and it's written five books of his own today to date but he begins this conversation with them you know and they were incredible i mean gene and paul in particular who were kind of running the whole thing and uh you know so moments like that it's it's very hard to process about you know what that's like you know think it hits me after i weep in the car <laughs> <laughs> But there you got to keep cool, you know, you got to get the job done. But those, you know, moments like that are just incredible because you're, you're watching this life cycle happen before your face. And you think back to, you know, the first Kiss record you put on in 1975 and thinking to yourself, wow, this is like, this is powerful. You know, this is really, then you remember your tennis coach in high school playing Kiss before a big man, this guy, this is what we got to listen to, you know, this will, this is what's going to pump you up, you know, and. Uh, you just realize they've been part of your life in this weird way. Like they are part of your life. And I've got bands like that, like the Rolling Stones are like that, Kisses like that. There are certain artists that uh, are so in intertwined with uh, moments in my life. There's just no getting around it, you know, they're, and you realize they're like in your DNA.
Well, let's go full circle here. I got a two-part question here. You mentioned your, your son, Charlie, and him writing five books on his own and you writing many books. What would you say first uh, to somebody growing up that wants to be a writer and what they need to do to get there? And two, what do you say as a parent of somebody, a kid coming to you as a parent saying, I want to be a writer? You mean if their kid wants to be a writer or if the parent wants to be a writer? If the, if the kid if wants the kid. to be a writer. Well, I mean, as far as advice, I mean, look, like John Cheever said, write. If you're not keeping a journal, then you're not on the right path. You have to do that. Um, we live in an age today where it's never been easier to get published, honestly. Um, there are so many outlets and so many opportunities. And even though publishing is going through a lot of tough times, traditional publishing, um, if you've got a story to tell, I speak at a lot of schools about, about journalism. And, you know, if you can go find a story, you don't even have to be writing for an outlet. To, in today's day and age, it is so easy to document things and to report things and to, to, to blog about things and to and do real-time reporting. So, I mean, you know, my attitude is if, if you want to write books, I always tell people the same thing. Go in a bookstore, go to the section of the store where you think your book would live, look at who's publishing those books and contact them. And because that's where your book, the profile of where your book would exist, you know, but like anything, if you want to be a writer, you've got to come at stories in a way nobody else has before. Even if the story has been told before, you have to find an angle that hasn't been explored and you have to be willing to tell stories that nobody will ever forget. I mean, you really have to be passionate if you're writing nonfiction, which is really all I can speak to. I'm not a fiction writer, but I do think there are similarities. Even as a fiction writer, you've got to be able to create something that touches people in a way that they've never felt before, you know? So it's pushing yourself to find stories that will resonate with people that people can relate to and that will somehow reveal some universal truth about life or death or whatever. But you've got to find that overarching theme that makes people read you and think, wow, I got to I got to follow this person because today people get followed. It's different than it used to be. If you're a good writer today, people can follow your career very easily. They can follow your social media. They can get on a mailing list, whatever it happens to be. It's easy to follow people today. And so you've got to be a person that people want to follow. And you do that by telling compelling stories that no one's heard before um, to the parent. I would say the same thing that like my parents said, encourage it, but let them know that writing is a part of it. You can't just talk about it. You've really got to um, take it seriously. You've got to read more than anybody reads. I mean, reading is to me um, the best practice for writing to immerse yourself in all kinds of authors, some you like and some you don't. I mean, you want to expose yourself to every kind of writing possible. And, and read um, on a daily basis as much as you can. So I would tell kids that, um, you know, but I would have them write every day and I would have them go hear authors speak and I would have them uh, find a favorite author and write them and ask them like I did. I don't think that ever goes out of style of, of reaching out to an expert for advice. You know what I mean? I get notes all the time from people. Um, that want to pursue something or have an idea for something. I love that, that people trust you to at least ask, you know? So um, I guess it's like anything. If you're a parent, you know, encourage your kid to find, to find their voice, you know, to find their truth and to find that thing that they're going to do better than anybody. You know what I mean? And they'll, and it, whether they end up doing that or not, 
it's going to lead them to something that's going to allow them to thrive and survive. I mean, I genuinely believe that. Um, you know, I, it took me a while to get to writing books, but I always knew I was going to do it. You know, advertising, had I not done it, I would have been okay. I mean, I felt like I had a very creative life as a, as a copywriter and creative director. You know what I mean? I felt like I sort of beat the odds. I could go into work and make stuff up every day. You know, it had to do, it had to sell things, but you know, it, my discipline as a writer at that point, what, what it's really helped me with is when I write a book now, I get very involved in the marketing of it because I look at it as a new product. And publishers really like that because I come at it as like, okay, here's what a campaign might be like for this book. You know, here's how I would market it. Here's what I would do with it. And publishers, you know, they like that approach because I'm looking at it as business. Once you finish writing the book, that's the creative part, but then it's something you've got to actively sell. So I always think of it as a new product. And if people wanted to see a list of your books or purchase your books, how would they do that? Um, I mean, Amazon.com is the easiest way. I have a website, which is simply chrisepting.com. There's a lot of stuff there, um, books and stories and photographs. And all, it's like a clearinghouse for the attic in my head. Um, but Amazon is as good a starting place. They've got all my books and, you know, whether it's Kindle or eBooks or hardback or paperback, whatever, they're all there. And that's a good starting point, like we've learned when you want to pick up on books somebody's written. So those are all there. Um, those are probably the two best starting places, my website and Amazon. Right on. Is there anything uh, lasting that you want to leave our, our audience with that you want to share with us? Um, I mean, just talking to you and bringing a lot of this stuff to the surface, just the idea of not giving up on stuff, you know, just when you, no matter how old you are. I mean, Grandma Moses, when did she start painting? She was like, like her 70s yeah, <laughs> first like yeah you know um uh you you never know what's going to happen you know so i i think the idea that it's never too late to write to write your story you know the my memoir workshops there'll be somebody who's 75 85 years old come in i love that and, and they're raring to go they want to change the world um with their story you know there was a guy last week he's 87 years old his name's Bill. And we were talking in the parking lot after, after class was over. And he, he's, he's writing about his wife. He's grieving his wife of many, many, many decades. That's why he's there to address that pain and to write about her and to bring her to life for other people. And we're out there in the parking lot. And he pulls a picture out on his phone. And when they met, like, I guess in the 50s, he had a photographer take a picture of them the day they met on the street. Because he said, I knew what was going to happen. And I wanted to document it. It was like, oh my God. Like that to me was like, I said, that story, that right there is, is the basis of something so big. What that's your starting point. You know, what what an incredible introduction to this love affair, you know, and this life together. I said, uh, you know, that that's the kind of thing that moves people, you know. And so so just that idea of, of, of not being afraid to confront your biggest fears, to find your biggest truth. Um, don't give up whether you want to be a writer or a painter or, or anything. You know, I still will go to the batting cages today. <laughs> I'm never going to play second base for the Mets, but I can still turn pretty well. 
on a 70 or 80 mile an hour pitch. I love oh. that. I love that I can put the bat on the ball even, you know? So I didn't get to the majors, but in my head, when I'm in the cage, I'm at Yankee Stadium. Like I still do that. I still fill in those blanks. And I, that's what pushes me is thinking, you know what? This is what it would kind of feel like there. So I just think in general, as a parting thought, just don't be afraid to, to go chase those things that might seem so daunting or on the horizon. Um, you know, you can get there, you know, and it, it, it's hard at first, but like they say, what every thousand mile journey starts with one step, it's, it's all those cliches come into play. And they're all true. Yeah. And I think they're all valuable as well. Chris, I probably could talk to you for like two more hours, but I know you got things <laughs> to do. So thank you so much for your time and your generosity today. Paul, my pleasure. Thank you for your, your great questions and great conversation and enthusiasm. I know part of your world is motivating people and coaching people. And that's really important. I mean, that's, I'm sure people feed off your energy and look forward to what you're going to tell them and show them and teach them. And that's, you know, that's a big part of the human experience is our teachers and our mentors and our, you know, that. So, so right back at you, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, this has been an episode of it's a long beach thing. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning into it's a long beach thing. Please tune in next time for another great episode. Thank you and have a good rest of your day.